0: The following podcast is from Doxa Church in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org.
1: All right, so we are going to be reading in Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 11. And if you're going to follow along on one of the Bibles that it's scattered underneath the chairs, it's going to be page 942. But it will also be posted right behind me. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. reconciliation. This is the Word of God.
0: So, I'm going to read it a letter, um, and um, I want to ask you this question. Have you ever written God a letter like this, or thought that it's time that he receive a letter from you like this? Dear God, I'm having a rough month, Not a week, or a day, but a month. Put an exclamation point in there, okay? You want to make sure he gets this. I was the victim of a violent carjacking where an armed thug put a loaded gun through my car window while I was in the car and tried to take my car. My wife just spent a week in the hospital trying to stave off giving birth prematurely, and then gave birth, and now we have a son at the house who weighs 4 pounds 4 ounces. This is only after my wife spent the last 20 weeks on bed rest, and I was working full-time job and trying to care for two little children while she was laying in bed. Oh, and if there's a, oh, and there's a money issue. Uh, how do I pay the hospital bills? God, just as an FYI, I paid the mortgage this month with my home equity line of credit. You know what, that's economic cannibalism, by the way, okay? So you have equity in your home, and you pay the mortgage with that. That doesn't work over the long haul. Are you there? Can you hear me? Do you care? I'm having problems, if you didn't know. Oh yeah, and my stove died, and I tried to rewire the stove myself and cross the lines improperly. So when I flipped the breaker, the stove basically exploded. But don't worry, God. I paid for both new stoves with the credit card. Sincerely, your alleged son. Amen. Life happens. Have you ever felt like saying, God, you know, hello? Or are you there? Do you care? Are you listening? And when you realize the person who writes a letter like this has been a Christian for 10 years, let's, let's not lose focus that that can happen to anyone here. So have you ever been able to uh, write a letter to God like this? And I want you to think about that, just have you ever been there? So we're studying the book of Romans. And it opens up, we're in chapter 5, and I'm going to give just a quick overview. I think sometimes it's helpful when you kind of see where we are in a book. And you could break down Romans a lot of different ways. Um, Some have classified Romans chapter 1 through 3, verse 20, uh, addresses the sin of man, the fallen, broken state. Uh, Chapter 3, 21 through 8, concerns the salvation of man. And again, there's wiggle room here. You could break this up. But if that's what it covers... In chapter 5, we're, we're in the throes of explaining the salvation of man. Uh, chapters 9 through 11 addresses the sovereignty of God. The guy who, who I saw um, write this breakdown likes S's, I guess, because he's got the sin of man, salvation of man, sovereignty of God. And then 12 through 16, addressing the sanctification of man. So looking at where we are clearly, though, we are in, in, in the... Um, we're putting our head really next to the heart of God to see how God has reconciled man to himself. Romans is, is tough sledding if you spend any amount of time in it because it's not, there's no narrative. It's theology, it's, it's a teaching of the very truths or the doctrines of God. So that's, that's where we've been spending time um, in the book of Romans. So, so we know in this section of Romans we're, we're covering the explanation of how salvation is received and how we receive the righteousness that is required for one to enter into heaven. And obviously, fallen sinful man is beyond repair, Um, so it comes from outside of himself. And that's obviously where we picked up in chapter 3, where Paul explains that the righteousness is found through faith in Christ. Chapter 4 picks it up and kind of explains a little more of this, that this had always been the plan of God from the Old Testament. You know It's interesting, you read the Old Testament and and you hear about God's revelation to the Jews and they've got all these works to do. And it's easy to be distracted to think that I can be right with God if I do certain things. Yet that's truthfully, from the beginning of the Old Testament, um, the the works that the Jews were given to display themselves as a people set apart for God, but not to get right with God. And we know that that with Abraham, it was credited to him, his righteousness was credited to him as faith. And so chapter 4 kind of backed up and said, let's, let's remind ourselves now this work of Christ. Um, it, it has been God's plan from the start that this righteousness would be attained through faith and not works. And then we follow up the second half of chapter 4 where it says, oh, by the way, you're not going to acquire this right standing with God based on the people who you are, namely the Jews, so you can write off the list that I have to come from the right family to be a part of the kingdom or the family of God. So we open up. So in light of this, we open up in chapter 5. And so obviously in Rome at this time, there's a lot of what, what I would call bad theology. Teaching about God that doesn't correlate with his word. And Paul writes to clarify some of this. And probably the biggest issue going on, and we've opened up in Romans with this, is that there's a profound amount of suffering taking place for these people that are calling Christ Lord and Savior. And that picks up with Randy last week where we covered that. And I'm going to read through that to kind of um, the conclusion of this week is a combination of where we were last week with the suffering combined with the questioning of the validity of our salvation experience in Christ. So we open up last week and it says this, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, it's simply a recap. And the therefore really tells us we're summarizing where we are now. We're taking a conclusory perspective of where we've just come from. So with that, that therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace. You know, it's interesting that peace is mentioned approximately 58 times in just the New Testament epistles. So we have this peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Clearly a recap here. Through him we have obtained access by faith into the grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. So really just restating where we're coming from. But now it kind of brings us to where we're going. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Now if, if you think that through, that sounds crazy. Let's own it. If, if you've got somebody who says, yeah, I just got a bad diagnosis, you go, praise God. You'd say, I don't need a friend like you. Lost my job. Well, praise God. Let's rejoice. A kid broke his arm. Bills are backing up. Almost murdered. Let's praise God. That doesn't equate. Yet here's where Paul steps in and says, wait a minute. Let's rejoice. And here's why. And some of this is just saying, you know, if you're going to suffer... And there's meaning, there's significance, there's dignity, and there's purpose. That suffering is a completely different can than the person who breaks his leg and, and is just lying in the street saying, I'm in pain. And what Paul's stopping and saying, you can't look at suffering the way we see suffering the way the world does. And here's where some of what we call our theology of what we believe and hold true comes in. Because we know that our suffering produces endurance. I'm not sure I need endurance today, but he's saying that's where it's going to take us. And endurance produces character. You know what character is? It's who you are when nobody's watching. Okay? Just think about that for a minute. Uh, I, I don't like that definition, by the way, but it seems accurate. It produces character, and character produces hope. Ah, so when nobody's watching, you can remain true to what God's doing and transforming and growing, and nurturing, and strengthening, and fortifying. You see, how do you know you really have what you have, unless you're not doing it to pump yourself up in the image of others? Or to have an agenda that if I do this, there will be a return? The concept of anonymity spiritually has huge significance. I had a guy who used to say this, Jonathan, do do something for somebody else and tell nobody about it try that. If you want an exercise this week, go home and say, I'm going to do something for nobody, but tell nobody. We'll maybe make that a C group question, and then we'll ask, have you done something for nobody, uh, for somebody without getting any recognition? And you'll be able to say, Jonathan said, I can't tell you. What a great guy I am. All right, so leaving that alone now, this hope, uh, this, excuse me, this character that produces hope, and the hope does not put us to shame. That's interesting, because God's love has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Now, if you think about this, why do we have to be told all of this truth about our suffering? Why can't we just pick it up and run with it? Because the nature of suffering blinds us or renders us unable at times to have any spiritual visibility. And I'm going to give you the best poster child for this. It's John the Baptist. In Matthew chapter 11, 2 through 3, the scripture reads, When John, who was in prison, do you like that? You know, it's like the guy who wrote the letter in the opening this morning. John, when John, who was in prison, little fact there, heard about the deeds of the Messiah, he sent his disciples to him. Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? Now think about this for a minute. This is John the Baptist. This is the same John the Baptist who proclaimed, Behold the Lamb of God. When he sees Christ coming, he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I meant when I said, A man comes after me who has surpassed me because he was before me. Now how does anyone come before you if they are not of God? Is John missing something here? Speaking of Jesus, John later said, he is the one who comes after me, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. This is the John who saw the Spirit of God descend upon Christ like a dove, alighting on him. And he heard the voice from heaven saying, this is my son whom I love and whom I'm well pleased. John, did we miss something here? This is the John in 1 John 32, it reads, then John gave this testimony. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. And I said to myself, I did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with the water, who told me, the man on whom you see the spirit come down and remain on is the one who will baptize with the holy spirit. I have seen and I testify, this is the chosen one of God. And how is it now that John sitting in prison saying, are you really the Messiah? And the point that I make is if you're sitting in your prison this morning and you're struggling and you're saying, is he there? Does he give a rip? And what's even worse than that is can he save me? Has he saved me? Am I really forgiven? And I say this because if John the Baptist can wind up there, every person in this room can wind up there easily. And so Paul is giving us this message to say the time and the place is going to come where you're going to be there if you're not already there. And I'm giving you the word that can assure you not only that he cares, he sees, he knows, and he understands, but that you're securing your salvation. I read, I read a theologian once who said the greatest fear of any Christian should be a very simple one, and it's this, that Christ was not victorious. Everything hinges, on his, everything hinges on the cross and what it did. So where are you this morning? Are you, are you a person who's sitting here this morning going, maybe he can't love me for who I really am? You know, if you pop the hood and look under, it's not, it's not pleasant. If, if God really knew how toxic my heart is. May, maybe I'm simply unworthy to receive his favor. Maybe God is just tired of overlooking my sin. Yeah, he saved me. I know he saved me. (laughs) But I've continued to do some of the same things since the day I was saved. I mean, come on! doesn't he get tired of it? Doesn't he say, I've got a threshold for sin of the believer? And then you're out? You know, these are the lies that Satan perpetuates, by the way. And they have to be identified. This is a lie. It is not truth. Or maybe you're just stuck in a place where you're feeling like you're treading water and there's not a lot of time left. Maybe you're dealing with an external adversity, a chronically sick child. Maybe there's a wayward or lost son or a a child, a daughter. Um, Maybe you just lost a job and you're like, hey, I gotta feed these guys, God. Are you with me? Maybe you received a bad diagnosis. Maybe, Maybe you just lost somebody abruptly. I think of Dale with his mom, and you walk through that. Um, you walk through that, and you're like, well, God, why'd you, why don't you give us a heads up if they're going? Or maybe you're watching somebody endure a slow and painful death. You know, those things, will, they'll, they'll shake us to the core. And now we're questioning, not only is God loving and kind, but, but it goes deeper. The lies always end up. You're not worthy to be saved. This isn't true. This is good. You're, you're deluding yourself that truly this God can cleanse you and present you before a holy God, pure, blameless, and without fault. We think these things because we don't see pain and adversity from God's standpoint. So a little bit of this morning, the teaching that I have is to say, hey, this, our culture and our world tells us things have to be a particular way. And the truth of the matter is, is much of what's in our culture today are toxic lies. Now think about this. Would we harm somebody we love? What's the answer? Quick. What, would we harm? And the answer is, of course. No, you, wait, wait, Jonathan, no, no, no. We wouldn't harm somebody we love. Right? You, you don't hurt people you love. And if I'm experiencing pain and God is holy and sovereign, what does that say if you connect the dots real quick? Huh, he mustn't love me, right? Yet on the other hand, have you inflicted pain on your child for their good? You ever give them a little swat on the bottom, and um, they start screaming. You ever give a, you, you ever allow a total stranger to jab a sharp object into that child you love and cherish so dearly? And the kid looks at you like you're a traitor. God forbid you've got. To, I've I've had seasons with my children where you're subject to things sometimes to tests and things, and those are painful endeavors. A kid came come out of and my one of my one-year-old child at the time, come out of anesthesia, and they said it's going to be bad when you put a little kid under anesthesia because they come out totally disoriented and screaming usually, and you can't console them. And we allowed somebody to do that to our child. Obviously, they want to do tests, and you got to put them to sleep. So the, so the fact that love and pain don't always, e- they don't always lead us to the right conclusion. Because sometimes love does cause, cause pain. Sometimes love will allow distress. Sometimes love will let somebody suffer. It's why. So Paul encourages us, if, if you're suffering, to reconsider the purpose of our pain. And choose to look at it from God's perspective that, that it does the same thing weights in a gym will do to us. It will strengthen and fortify and build up us to face the other trials and difficulties that come. And if you're not fit, think about just the physical training to do, it, to, to, to do a marathon. There's a lot of pain that precedes that race. But look at the victory when you cross the finish line. More so today if you're suffering it should not be able to shake our salvation in the finished work of Christ and that's where we pick up this morning this further assurance not just that there's going to be pain and difficulty but that this salvation that we receive in Christ is an unshakable enduring everlasting eternal salvation and that's where Paul picks up and he says in verse six for while we were still weak at the right time Christ died for the ungodly so he basically opens up with the assurance that we're looking for It's interesting, again, that if we were wondering if our works have anything to do for this, it doesn't. And he's restating simply that, for it says, for while we were still weak. Well, if you're weak, you can't do much, right? And then we attribute our salvation that it says at the right time that Christ died for the ungodly. So seeing seeing this further destroys that I bring anything to the table. And so Paul gives us an illustration. He says, what does it mean to look like when you're weak and to die for the ungodly? He says in verse 7, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person. Now that's the person who does all the right things, okay? Though perhaps for a good person, I like that better though, because you can be righteous and good and they might not be the same, right? So a good person might have done something to gain favor with you versus just doing the right things according to societal standards. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. So from the world's standpoint, we ask ourselves, what is the greatest thing we can do? The most noble act of a human being in our culture. And truly, it it is to make the greatest sacrifice, which is to give your life for the benefit of another. And so Paul says here, he goes, you know, maybe occasionally we will make that kind of a sacrifice, but it's only going to be for a particular class of people. You have to define the person that you will give this great sacrifice for. You may be a child, maybe it's your spouse, maybe it's for an innocent victim, maybe for one who had lived a noble life. That under those conditions, it would be fitting to make that type of a sacrifice. But you have to fit, in order to receive the ultimate sacrifice, you have to fit into a worthy class in order to receive that type of a sacrifice. But if you want to know the magnitude of the love of God for us, he departs. He departs from the standard that our culture dictates that you must be a worthy cause. And it's really, you turn it inside out, it's the complete opposite. But in, in verse 8 opens up, but God showed his love for us, that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. And I, I love this King James version. I waffle on these, I like King James, so you see my bias come through. But God demonstrated, the King James says it a little different, but God demonstrated his own love for us that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. So now if I ask how, how much does God love, God says, I've I've given you a demonstration. I looked this up a the internet dictionaries. You know, I like the internet and there's some cool stuff, so always take it with a grain of salt. I looked up the word demonstrate or demonstration, and I like the definition. It says to display, it's a display of belief in a cause by taking public action. So there's something that everybody gets to see. It's something that we have a belief in something that alters how we behave externally. And so when we say, I want to see how much God loves me, he says, watch, and presents Calvary. That's his demonstration. Now, for all the men here, I want to um, clarify a little bit more of this de- the word demonstration. Do you, know, you know what next Friday is? <laughs> men are sweating now. Come on, somebody. Some- <laughs> Valentine's Day. Does your wife ever say, do you love me? And what do you do? You say, of course I do. And she looks at you with contempt. She says, yesterday was our anniversary. (laughs) Oops, oops. Yeah, you did a poor demonstration there, right? So so if you have love, you know, they say, show me. Don't tell me. If God said, well, I love you a lot and there's no Calvary, I'd question God just the way your wives will question you when Friday rolls around and you don't come home with flowers, a nice reservation somewhere, I'm going to give you another out. If you totally forget, now I don't know how you'll do this, but you might. I mean, there are men here, right? So if you totally forget and you wake up Saturday morning and you realize you dropped the ball, you tell her, look, I don't go out on Valentine's Day anymore because you're going to get bad service. The food's not that good and there's long lines and they overcharge us. So I was actually planning to take you out tonight. You see, so I've given you a solution on how to get around this little, um, you know, fiasco of dropping the ball seriously. So we demonstrate love. And God says, if if you want a demonstration, here it is. You know, it's it's also interesting here kind of feel like the man once again, because this is the demonstration for lost causes, right, men? That it says, but God demonstrated his own love toward us that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. You know, the display of belief demonstrated by God was for a, a class of people that were lost causes, that they were sinners. And I, and I want to give you an illustration here of what a sinner looks like, and it's personal. Yeah, I'm 16 years old. I'll never forget this experience. I was driving down. We had this green Mazda, which was an incredibly ugly car. I remember where we were driving. I was living up in New Jersey at the time. We were were going to pick my brother up, um, and he was going to school. It was like 30 minutes away. And I'm driving in the car with my mom. I'm 16 years old, and my mom looks at me. We're talking, and I remember we were in a town called Deal heading south. And my mom looks at me and says, you know, you're going to need Jesus sooner or later. I remember this crystal clear. And I looked at her and I said, yeah, but it sure as hell isn't going to be now. Think about that. So there's a young man, 16 years of age, who is absolutely delusional and blinded by his own pride. I was there, I know. Overflowing with youthful arrogance, Oblivious to any duty owed to my creator, sustainer, and redeemer. Consciously and intentionally choosing to live a life of sinful self-gratification. I'm clueless to the magnitude of the stench that I am before a holy God. And in this state, you would classify me as wicked, rebellious, and a hater of God. And in spite of my hopelessness and being in an eternally damned state, I flatly reject and declare my need for a God oh, that's why we were yet sinners. I am an enemy of God. And he says, him, he's the one, the the, the class of people that he represents in the world, that's the one I die for. If you're awake, that should make you really uncomfortable. Because again, there's no strings attached. You know, there's nothing that correlates to that sacrifice that we see in our world at all. You know, have you ever come to somebody and brought the gospel to them? And you go, oh, if, if you confess your sin and own it, that, that you, you've not lived according to his holy standards, and you come before God and say, I repent, uh, forgive me, uh, and I'm sorry, and I want a relationship with you, you'll receive the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, power to live this life out, and eternity with God. And they go, so, so how did I get this? How, what, what did you tell me to do? Oh, just have faith. Just be willing to believe, to bank on the truth that he died on the cross, to present you before a holy God, righteous, pure, and good. And they say, well, d- don't I have to do anything else? No. Now, often in our culture, the response will be, well, that's too easy. Oh, all right, then try working your way there. I'm flexible. I mean, that's how I'd like to respond to them personally. I just give it some effort for a while and get back to me later. But if, you're, if, if we're really thinking about the words that I just gave to you on how to become a Christian, you, the, the appropriate response would be, you're an idiot, that's ridiculous. That's absurd. That doesn't correlate with any type of reality that I've had, ever had any experience with. You must need some medication. That would be a more appropriate response. If, if we grasp the fullness of what he has done for us, it should leave somebody staggering in disbelief that this maker of the heavens and the earth would allow us access into a relationship with him to receive peace with God and eternal security through simply saying, I'll acknowledge your son did something on the cross for me. And if we get it, if that really sinks in from the head to the heart, living a sacrificial lifestyle would be a gimme. It'd be like every morning you get up, oh, it's a mulligan. God, you, you have it all. I think tithing to me, I tithe a 10, more than a 10 probably, I do. But tithing to me when I think about it is really kind of ridiculous. Here's the way I do tithing. One for me, two for me, three for me, four for me, five for me, six for me, seven for me, eight for me, nine for me, one for you, one for me, two for me, three for me. You know, It's absurd. That, that I would set a standard where the vast majority of the return of his favor in worldly goods comes back to me. That doesn't make sense again. It'd be like God saying, hey, I'll take the first nine. You take one. I'd be like, thanks, thanks, that's a good deal because you're the one that lets the air come in and out of my lungs. I have the ability, the brains and the knowledge to go to work. You've blessed me with a family. You've blessed me with a place to keep me warm. Oh, I have running water too. Oh, this is a merciful God, Thanks. Paul paints this picture of what, the, of what the love of God looked like when Christ died for us, while we were still lost, to emphasize his point here. That if what the love of God looked like when we were enemies to God, then how much more so is our security with God now that we have been reconciled to him through his son? See, he starts this illustration by saying, look, I'm explaining my love for you when you were lost. And if you're worried about questioning your eternal salvation and security with God now, he picks up in verse 9 and says this since therefore, another therefore saying everything that comes before we're taken into account, since therefore we have been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more Now that we are reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. King James reads it a little differently. I'll read that. For if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved by or through his life. Meaning this, that if we have received this gift of salvation and we are now with God and have peace with him, he says, not only is that it, but I'm going to give you the indwelling power of my Holy Spirit. The same resurrection power that, rose, that took my son from the grave and brought him to the right hand of me. And I'm going to give you his spirit, the Holy Spirit. So if you're questioning whether or not I could erase the sin, well, it's there and present. But I don't not only give you that but I give you a resurrection power to live this light out and knowing that how much more so should you be secure in your relationship with me. And that's where Paul leaves it. And he concludes, this is more than that. Like Billy Mays, you know, oh, there's more. No, wait, there's more. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord, through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we now have received reconciliation. And he simply recaps this now to say that if you have truly received this gift, there's only one response. It's a rejoicing. The trials, the tribulations are opportunities that grow us, mature us, and put us out as a showpiece. They showcase us as believers to a lost world that there really is a holy God. See, if you took two groups of people, of the world and of Christ, and you compared them, can you tell a difference? And what God's word tells us is yeah, you can. If, if, they re- if you have truly received the peace of God, you can look in the face of the adversity in these trials and this tribulation, no matter what storm you go through, and the world will catch note. They'll look at you and say, wait a minute. How is it that you could look at life this particular way? That there appears to be an internal gyroscope that every time I dump you on your head, you wind up standing. Emotionally, physically, and spiritually, that, that you have a strength to endure, a strength to overcome, or a strength to love, a strength to forgive. The, the, the opening letter to God this morning was from me in June of 1998. You, ha- you will have times where you just go, come on. Uh, how, you, I'm dealing with the brokenness of humanity, I'm dealing with violent, godless people, I'm dealing with economic distress, I'm dealing with worries over... You know, so, as a parent, I'll say this, I think at times it's more difficult to deal with a child's suffering than your own suffering, because you have a sense of powerlessness. You can, when we suffer as an adult, you could say you can accept it and re- receive it with perspective, You've also got the benefit of time to say, hey, well, if I were to go out with the tide today, I've experienced a good life. But then you look at a small child who's suffering of your own flesh and blood, and boy, you are powerless. You're just flapping in the wind. You know, it seemed that month, it it just came from every direction. And I remember thinking this, that God is either everything or he's nothing. I mean, there's no in-between. Like this thing is just a complete catastrophe that's meaningless, that has no significance, that has no purpose, that has no utility, and it's just life. And truthfully, that's the state of the world. Remember that when you bring the gospel to somebody. There's their default, if they'll be honest with you. So my letter back from God says this. My son, my son, you live in a fallen and sinful world. I know this, and I'm aware of every detail of your life. See, when you hear those words from a holy God, you kind of exhale. Okay. All right. Okay. It was my spirit that protected you in the violent carjacking incident. Whew. Yeah. Yeah, thank you. I'm complaining about putting out a window. I was torn out. And he's saying I was protecting your life. You will use this story later to speak of my protection and what sin does to the world we live in. I love your wife and precious children. Trust that I will care for them, even the premature newborn child. Your material possessions are not of great concern to me. I don't like that. That makes me unhappy still. But in managing them, you will come to learn the things of life, what things in life are truly important and what is unimportant. Nevertheless, I will nourish and care for you and the ones you love. Trust in my word, as it is the only thing that shall endure. Trust that the finished work of my son on the cross is sufficient, not only to redeem you, but to sustain you as well. Please also remember that your justification was free, but not cheap. These things that I have spoken to you, which you have been enduring, know that in me you may have peace. And this is John 16, In the world you shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I've overcome the world, your loving Father. See, there's, there's nothing wrong. There's nothing wrong with writing God those letters when you're on the ropes. I, I would almost encourage you to do it because what you wind up doing is documenting where you really are when you don't know which way to go. And you'll see that as you look over your shoulder in life, that from that vantage point on that particular day, he led you, that he went and found you there. See, I don't have to get right and become something where, where the, the grace that flows from, from the maker of the heavens and the earth that is found in Christ Jesus, it finds me where I stand. Ain't that a beautiful thing? Then you're going to exhale and go, good, because I can't get there, right? Nothing, nothing is wrong with those letters of distress. Write them. But then I would encourage you, just remember to look for his response. Let me pray. Father, I thank you for um, just your words of encouragement that uh, we can write you letters and that you can respond. And Father, I pray for those here that are they're at a place where they're waiting for your response. Father, they're, they're struggling. Um, I pray that, that they would see the miraculous grace that finds them just where they are. Father, I pray that you continue to grow us as a body of believers in your word, that we would be grounded in your word. And to know that, that this is what holds us together with you and each other. Father, I thank you for your kindness to me this morning and all of it that's led up until this moment and the hope I have with you in the future. In Christ's name, amen.